0: hours maybe, hey? <laughs> well, if you if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 16 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with me and you'll see the slides. Matthew chapter 6. I'm sure for some of you this is like the passage you look forward to the most. And you'll see why very shortly. This is what Jesus says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us eyes to understand, uh, ears to hear what it is that you want us to know through this passage that your son Jesus gives us. And we pray that we would have a heart to respond. We pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So fasting is a topic that many of us um, might not feel familiar with. And so a couple of resources that I've drawn from this morning that I wanted to highlight are, are uh, one by a guy named John Tyson in a book called The Beautiful Resistance, another by Donald Whitney, "Whitney Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and then uh, uh, a commentary by Scott McKnight on uh the Sermon on the Mount. These can be helpful resources for making sense of um, fasting, and I wanted to highlight them because those are some of the key ones that I used this week in preparing for this message. Vancouver is a diverse city, and with that ethnic diversity, there's a diverse array of food to choose from. And if you grew up in Vancouver, you know there's no reason you should be sticking to just your food at home. We have so many options, great options around us. You can find great Filipino bakeries, great sushi restaurants, dim sum, ramen, faux spots, great burger joints, curry, Malay, fusion uh, cuisine. There's so much. And even if you're not into meat, there's really good vegan restaurants in our city. Don't judge me, but they're really good. Great flavor. It should come as no surprise that Cascaders are known for their love for food we love our food in fact one of you last week had been threatening to leave cascades if we didn't bring back those luncheons that we do every month that's how important food is to you you take it that seriously and i think herein lies a bit of that tension we have so much food so much access to food we can't actually finish it all metro vancouver estimates that 13,000 tons of healthy edible food is thrown out at their transfer stations alone each year. On a global scale, in 2019, 931 million tons of food was wasted. We live in an age of excess. We live in an age of food, excess, luxury, and addiction. Most of us in this room are not asking this question, did I get enough food to eat? That's the question that many in the Global South ask. Did I get enough food to eat? The question many of us are prone to asking is, how was the service we received? Which is fundamentally a different question. It orients itself around quality and not quantity. The Sermon on the Mount highlights three disciplines that Jesus assumes his followers will practice. And we've spent the better part of the last two months looking at that. Jesus assumes his people will give to the poor. So he says, when you give. Jesus assumes his people will pray when you pray. Then he says, he assumes his people will fast. The first we believe in, we think it's good, giving to the poor, giving to those in need matters. We seek to practice the second. We, We seek to pray. We just spent the last few weeks in that. But this last one, fasting, if there were one that we were willing to neglect, it'd be this one. Now, think about this in the Lord's gracious favor. This passage did not line up to happen last week on the day of our luncheon, on the day of our potluck. It would have been a little bit awkward to say, we got a feast downstairs, but today we're talking about fasting. I'm glad it didn't work out that way. Now, many followers of Jesus, we don't really have a category for fasting, especially as it relates to discipleship. And in our secular society, people actually are aware of fasting. Some diets highlight intermittent fasting, partial fasting, uh, maybe fasting from foods in, your, in a keto diet. These are motivated by different things, though. They're motivated by weight loss, by detoxing your body, uh, or some other measure. And yet, if someone were to ask you or myself, how does fasting relate to discipleship, I don't think, one, we would ha- be able to maybe answer it really clearly. But secondly, all that excitement that we have when we talk about food and the food that we love would disappear. We wouldn't have the same excitement over it. You can't just be, you just be me. Now why? Why does it disappear? Why would that excitement kind of just start to fade away as we talk about fasting? Well, one, I think, is because it's hard. Fasting is really difficult. Some of us also just struggle with having healthy relationships to food. Many of us, would struggle to admit this, but we actually feel like we're slaves to our bodily urges, cravings, hungers. We feel hunger, and we feel it. Sometimes we're not even hungry, and we seek to eat. But another reason why I I think this is so difficult is because fasting is confusing. There's a lot of confusion surrounding what it is, and what I want to try to do this morning is just try to remove some of that confusion by answering what it is and what it isn't. Giving you biblical reasons for fasting, and then invite most of you to take a step towards practicing it. And then we'll finish off by giving you an idea for what, of what happens when God's people begin to fast. So, what is fasting? Fasting, biblical fasting, is voluntarily refraining from food for a spiritual purpose, it's a voluntary decision. Jesus does not explicitly command us to fast. You will not find anywhere in the New Testament that Jesus says, you must fast. This means, I think, to some extent, if you never fast, your position before God as a follower of Jesus does not change. However, fasting can be beneficial, and Jesus does assume that we'll fast. He just never commands it outright. Fasting is not abstaining from any item. You can abstain from social media, like Instagram, you know, uh, Facebook. You can abstain from the news because you see the positive impact abstaining from these things have. It might lower your anxiety levels. It might help you with focusing on your work. You can abstain from coffee and alcohol because you want to save money or you want to get better sleep or you want to cut out stimulants in your life. And those are all good things. But that's not fasting at least not in the way that Scripture talks about fasting. When Scripture talks about fasting, it's only talking about food. Fasting is not simply abstaining from food, though. There is a purpose, and it's not just losing pounds, getting rid of your body of some toxins, resetting your metabolism. There has to be a spiritual purpose. Fasting is about temporarily abstaining from food in order to focus our attention on God. You're not fasting to get God's attention. You already have it as one of His children. You're not on strike until He gives you what you want or until He acknowledges you. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is more about focusing on God than it is about food. Fasting is, is, is intimately connected to prayer. They go together. Fasting without prayer is just painful. It's torture. Don't do it. Not a good idea. And your family or your roommates will not appreciate it either. Fasting speaks to this idea, to the fact that we are embodied beings. We aren't just bodies with spirits. You cannot separate body and spirit. They're unified. And fasting expresses this. Our whole being enters into this response, this time of prayer. We don't just pray with our minds, but with our bodies as well. And the Bible includes examples of fasting, different kinds of fasts. One is a normal fast. Fast is probably the most common. Fasting from food, but not water. Another one is a partial fast, abstaining from certain foods and drinks. Daniel would be an example of this, who abstains from certain foods. An absolute fast, you could see in Ezra. Ezra ate no food nor drank water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of God's people. And then there's a supernatural fast. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and doesn't eat any food. Moses, for 40 days and 40 nights, we're told, does not drink water or food. These are not repeatable. This last one is not repeatable apart from God's calling and empowering, and is very, very rare. Now, why would someone in their right mind choose to fast? Maybe that's what you're wondering. You know what it feels like to miss one meal because you're busy, and you know what happens to you. And you don't like it. And people don't like it. But why would someone choose to fast for longer than that? Well, there is a spiritual purpose, we said. Often in response to sacred moments in our life, to God, uh, to, uh, in response to the evil we see in the world, to grief for a need that we're aware of. That purpose, in large part, is to set our attention, our focus on God. And John Mark Comer will note that fasting is not this hunger strike but it is a way of expressing to God our hunger for Him to move in our life. What I want to do is highlight six reasons, biblical reasons for fasting. And more often than not, these reasons, you'll see, are not um, scheduled, but they're responses to an event or something that's happened. And these, uh, these six, you'll see, I've uh, drawn and adapted uh, from Donald Whitney's book. So the first one is this to express grief over sin, death, evil, or injustice. Scott McKnight will note, fasting enters into how God interprets experiences, understands, and explains significant events into what God thinks and feels about death, sin, war, violence, and injustice. And so when you fast, you are expressing a grief that God feels at evil, death, violence, and injustice. And an example you can see in Scripture is in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David and all the men grieved the death of Saul and his son Jonathan. And if you read on, you'll actually see that David actually writes a lament over their death. Ironically, if you know the story of David's life, Jonathan actually fasts to express the grief that his father, Saul, has been trying to kill David. And he was grieved by this injustice. And so in 1 Samuel 20, we're told Jonathan did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. And one of the most famous examples of using a fast to express grief is the apostle Paul in Acts 9. For three days, we're told, Paul was blind and he did not eat or drink. See, Paul realizes upon encountering Jesus on the road to Damascus that he has been hunting down, arresting, and supporting the murder of the Messiah's people. He had been persecuting Jesus and his people, and he believed what he was doing was right, that it was actually in line with God's will, only to discover that he wasn't just wrong, he was actually doing evil. And so he fasted in grief, and which leads to this next one, this next reason, to express repentance and a return to God. Fasting, can be to show your commitment to obeying God and moving in a new direction. It's a physical demonstration of humbling yourself, rejecting your ways, and embracing His. We're not talking about punishing yourself or self-flagellation. We're saying, I'm focusing on God and your ways. And Israel's Day of Atonement was this annual day of— an annual day marked by confession, atonement by the people of God, and— Forgiveness of sins for the people of God, and it included fasting. Fasting was done as this way of facing our sin and looking to God. One of the more striking examples of this scene on a large, communal, citywide level is seen in the book of Jonah. Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh are Israel's enemies. They hate them for what that nation has done, the Assyrians have done to Israel. uh, Jonah doesn't want to go there. He doesn't want to preach any message at all. He doesn't want to warn them. He just wants them to get judged. He reluctantly preaches, and the Lord moves in the hearts of the whole people of the city. And we're told in Jonah 3, verse 5 through 7, the Ninevites believed God. They believed the message that Jonah had proclaimed. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Their fasting signified their repentance. They did repent. And in verse 10, we are told when God saw what they did and how they had turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Third reason, fast, too fast, is to cry out for deliverance, protection, even provision. And this isn't simply for yourself. This can be for others. An example of this we can see in Esther, the queen of Persia, who discovers there's a plot to kill her and all of her people, the Jews. She planned to go into the court of the king uninvited and to appeal to him to protect her people from this plot. And she sends this message to her uncle Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day and my I and my attendants will fast as you do when this is done I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish I perish Israel in exile fasts and prays that God would deliver them from this scheme to have all of them killed and we know that God does rescue them David will write a personal prayer of deliverance while fasting in Psalm 109 and when you read In the book of Ezra, Ezra calls on God's people to fast and pray for God's protection as the exiles actually return back to Jerusalem. In Ezra 8, we read, there at the Ahava Canal, I proclaim the fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road. Because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. So we fast to express our grief, to express repentance, to cry out for deliverance and protection. We also fast to seek God's direction. When you fast, you're carving out room in your life for God to speak. You're setting this, pre- there's this precedent in Scripture of seeking clarity from God about His purposes and His will. And fasting and, and praying will not guarantee that God will give you clear guidance. But it can make us more receptive to Him and help us pay attention more. And I've experienced this in my own life, it, Lindsay and I both, had this greater ability to focus and to cut through the noise when fasting to discern his leading. You can see this in, in Acts, this connection between fasting, praying, and the Lord's direction. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for the church that they helped plant with prayer and fasting, they committed these elders to the Lord. In Acts 13, we're told that while the church is praying, worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so, ha- so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed ha- hands on them and sent them off. Out of this time of worship, prayer, and fasting, the Spirit of God says, These two guys, I have a task for them, and you're going to commission them. But it's the Spirit who commissions them first. And it comes out of this time where God directs. The fifth reason we'll fast is to worship and enjoy God. And a great example of this is found in the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us of this woman named Anna. She was a prophet and a widow living in Jerusalem. She lived in the temple. And in Luke 2.37, we're told she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. We can fast to enjoy God's presence, to worship Him. John Tyson will note, Fasting is one of God's great tools for reorienting our longings away from the flesh and back toward God. All of us have deeply engraved patterns, dopamine reward mechanisms, and neural pathways centered around the need for physical satisfaction. But fasting breaks these default connections and reorients us toward a greater food, intimacy with and enjoyment of God. And the sixth reason for fasting is to minister to the needs of others. And the clearest example we get of this is in Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 recounts how Israel is upset with God. They're wondering, God, how come you're not responding to my fasting? We're fasting. We're coming to you. And you're not responding. And God confronts them. And he says, pretty much says, you are playing a game. You're not really interested in focusing on me. You're not really interested in being rightly related to me. You're exploiting your workers. Your fasting doesn't even end with repentance, but instead with quarreling and strife. You don't care about justice. And then this is what God says to them. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, And untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. In other words, God is saying, I love fasting that results in concern for others. And not just for yourself. Fasting that leads to loosening the chains of injustice, untying the burdens tied around people's necks, setting captives free, breaking all the yokes that leave people enslaved and caught in sin under evil and suffering injustice. When you do this, light shines around this world, and I hear your prayers because you're not living a life pretending to care about being rightly related to me and others and this world, but because you are deeply interested in what I care about. I know you care, and I see your heart. See, fasting will reveal your heart, and it reveals what you depend on most. And the way of Jesus is learning to depend on God for life. You can understand the purpose of fasting and still not do it. You can understand how fasting draws our bodies into our prayers and helps us focus our attention on Him. You can understand that fasting isn't manipulating God, but about connecting with Him. And you can still avoid it. You can avoid fasting. But see, fasting will reveal what you depend on. John Tyson will note, when you look back at, over the redemptive history It's remarkable how much spiritual danger and disobedience were related to the simple comforts of food. A good and normal hunger for food overtook the greater desires of God, ultimately leading people, God's people, to compromise and to even disobey. Let me give you some examples. Adam and Eve in the garden are tempted at least in part to rebel against God, rejecting the author of life and life itself because the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. Esau, the brother of Jacob, surrendered his birthright because he was desperately hungry for food. He wanted his brother's stew. He's like, I'll give you my birthright if you give me some of that stew. Like, how hungry do you have to be to do that? How short-sighted do you have to be? And we're told in Hebrews, afterwards, he wanted it back, and he was rejected. Despite all his tears and desperate searching for this blessing, he couldn't undo what he had done when he surrendered it. An entire generation in Israel refused to trust God's provision in the wilderness, and they were forced to wander there, because in part, they craved for other food from Egypt, saying, if only we had meat to eat, We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Israel were slaves. The Israelites, they were slaves for more than 300 years in Egypt. And the food came at no cost? Come on. Free labor? For over 300 years, but it doesn't cost you anything to get this meat, this food. This is almost like a Stockholm syndrome. Ah, you know, Egypt wasn't so bad. They were looking out for us. They were giving us cucumbers. Like, come on. How is that supposed to work? It wasn't so bad. Their hunger for what they knew, for comfort was greater than their hunger for the destiny that God had for them. Their hunger for the food of old, distorted reality and encourage them to disobey God. And each of these moments, Adam, Eve, Esau, Israel in the wilderness, highlights a settling, a compromising away from God, from what God intends and desires for us through food. John Tyson will call this King's Stomach because we make our stomach the king. It calls the shots of our schedule, of what we will do and when we will do it. But when Jesus comes and is about to begin his ministry, something completely different happens in his life. Jesus is baptized, and as he comes out of the waters, the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased The Holy Spirit descends on him, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is led into the wilderness. We're told by the Holy Spirit to be tested. And there he will fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Physically, he's weak and he's hungry. And then we're told the tempter comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Poor you, Jesus. You're the Son of God and you're starving. You're starving. You should eat before starting your ministry and what you're about to do. Your father provided for Israel. He gave them manna in the wilderness. Why hasn't he done that for you? Aren't you his son? Ah, well, if he's really given you power and authority as his son, take care of your needs. Sustain yourself. Feel yourself. You need it. Turn these rocks into loaves of bread. And Jesus' response is beautiful because he will undo what Adam, Eve, Esau, and Israel did. He's hungry. His stomach churns for food, but there is a deeper, wider, greater hunger that he has that pangs within him. And in that time, in the wilderness, the Spirit of God had sustained, strengthened, and empowered him. And so he answers, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is what Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness. But Jesus lives it. We are more than the food we eat. We're sustained by more than just the food that we eat. And Jesus doesn't come out of the wilderness after 40 days weaker. He comes out stronger. He comes out with this greater authority. We're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about Him spread through the whole countryside. Jesus would not depend on His own strength, nor His own might, but on the Spirit of God. See, fasting reveals what you will depend on. And in Jesus, we see that all those previous failures of humanity, Jesus comes and fulfills what humanity was supposed to be, a people who depend on God. So how should we fast? We have spent all this time trying to make sense of what is fasting, what are biblical reasons for it, how does it relate to Jesus and his way. How should we fast if we're going to fast? We have reasons for it, but how should we? Well, let me speak first to who shouldn't fast, because I think there are people who shouldn't fast. In some cases, it's not wise, spiritually or developmentally, to fast. And I want you to be free of that. If you're a teenager, your body's still developing, you shouldn't be fasting. Be free. You're probably rejoicing right now what you're going to have later. You should not fast if you want to lose weight. Not a good reason. You should not fast if you are struggling with an eating disorder or with body body image issues. And this is actually more common than you think. Be free of this if this is something you struggle with. If you have medical conditions, including diabetes, you should consult your doctor before fasting. Fasting, if you have these other things in your life, will complicate them in ways that are not necessary at all. And this may be a time for you then to revisit your counselor, a doctor, and allow God to work in these areas of your life first. So be free. And it may be better for you to actually choose something else instead. So how should we fast? Well, Jesus tells us in this passage how not to fast. He says, when you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do. They disfigure their faces to show they are fasting. They've already gotten the reward in full. Their only reward is the acknowledgement of others. So when you fast, don't announce it. Attention everybody. I am fasting for our church, for our city, for you. I'm fasting for you. Like, that's not what we do. That's not our way. Don't make it obvious and say, oh, I am so hungry, and that donut you're eating looks so good. Can you save me some? No. That's not what we do either. In the first century, it was common for Jews to fast, pious Jews to fast twice a week. And many pious Jews fasted specifically for God to send rain in the dry seasons, something they desperately needed in an agrarian society. Rain meant food. Rain meant life. And those who fasted and prayed for rain were regarded with great respect. They were seen as interceding on behalf of their community. And the respect from your community was really attractive. So people in Jesus' day would literally disfigure their faces to make it obvious they were fasting. They were what my son's uh, children's Bible highlighted like these extra holy religious people. The The temptation for them was really real. And Jesus is saying, if that's what motivates you, don't bother fasting. Don't do it. Don't waste God's time. Don't waste your own. Your only reward is that others will see you. That's it. There will be nothing else. That is not the righteousness I came to bring, Jesus says. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it's not obvious that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. In other words, when you fast, go on living your life. Go on living your life. Do the things you would normally do. The kind of righteousness that God cares about isn't motivated by being seen uh, by others as a great person, as a holy person, wise person, but instead motivated by seeing and being seen by God. By seeing and being seen by God. And the promise we are giving is that when you fast like this, your father will actually see it, though no one else does. And he will reward it. You can trust him. And so, if you were going to fast and this felt new to you, but you wanted to step into it this week, let me just offer you five ways you can try to step into this. First, pray and ask for a purpose for fasting. Maybe it's one of these six you've seen here. Maybe you need direction. Maybe you need to actually express grief or repentance. Or you want your heart to actually grow in concern for others. Second, start small. Start with one meal. And then later on, if you want, uh, try two meals. What was often common in the first century was for a fast to begin with dinner. Say dinner tonight, you wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have breakfast, and then you'd break your fast for dinner tomorrow. That might be something you may want to try. Third, allow your hunger to prompt you to pray. Whenever you're hungry, you feel it. You can't ignore it. There's these pangs in your stomach, and you're like, oh, man. And then all of a sudden, things start to be, like, really attractive. Things that aren't, like, you don't care about when your stomach's full or when you're not that hungry. Like a banana it looks amazing when you're fasting. You just, you're like, wow, that's the best banana I've ever had. It's that hunger. Use that hunger to prompt you to pray. Turn those pangs into, like, a little reminder, a notification Oh, that's my reminder to pray. Those times you would spend uh, eating, spend it in prayer. So if you normally have 15 minutes at breakfast, spend 15 minutes in prayer. He is the focus, not our hunger. You don't want to just be sitting there like, oh my gosh, I'm so hungry. Okay, how many more hours do I have? Okay, six more hours. That, That will be terrible. Do not do that to yourself. So use those hunger prompts to pray fourth write down anything you sense god's saying even if you're not sure just write it down and test it relative to scripture god will never contradict anything he's already said in scripture so write it down you don't have to be confident and then fifth and, and connected to that share your experience with your community group share what you what you're trying to make sense of what you're praying through and then spend time praying about it as a group. We don't follow Jesus on our own. It's not an individualistic thing. It doesn't work like that. It was never meant to be that way. And so this is an important part of that discerning process as you fast and pray. Now, what happens, what can happen when we fast and pray? When God's people fast, God responds. He often brings change. Moses fasted for 40 days and nights, and it led to the revelation of the Ten Commandments. Hannah, we're told, fasted, and God provided a son for her who would lead his nation out of decline. Esther called her people to fast, and God responded by rescuing her and eliminating their enemies. Jesus fasted for 40 days and succeeded where humanity had previously failed. He overcame where humanity had been overcome by their hunger. And more. The church in Acts fasted in Antioch and, led by the Spirit, sent out Paul and Barnabas on a mission to expand the church around the Mediterranean. But even today, there's an impact of praying and fasting when God's people do it. A 24-7 prayer group in Atlanta felt led to fast and pray because they sensed God wanted to break the spirit of racism in Atlanta. They saw the turmoil and issues in their city, and they responded by choosing to fast as a community for 40 days. And they would contend for God to move and change their city. For a couple of years, it had been this group, a group of African American pastors and uh, white pastors that were working towards reconciliation. They 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 were called One Race. And they had had a prophetic speaker share a, a word that God wanted to break that spirit of racism in Atlanta, and they decided to take that seriously and actually pray to that end, to fast to that end. And the climax of this um, initiative took place at the summit of Stone Mountain, which is one of the key historical locations of the KKK and the location for the nation's largest, in the US that is, Confederate monument built. Into the side of this cliff, that's where everything would climax. Now, Christianity Today wrote an article about this event that took place there at Stone Mountain, and they tell the story of the succession of different people, leaders, saying and doing powerful things. Over 3,000 people attended this event. Bill Humphrey had said, "The Lord wants to eradicate racism and dead religion in every and in every." In reverie from the church, he wants to expose blind spots of prejudice, privilege, bitterness, and fear. The answer to the vision and hate is the gospel. To division and, and hate is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, another pastor, John, Jonathan Tremaine Thomas, said, "Heaven is among us. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And he was followed by the civil rights leader John Perkins. These were just the people who were proclaiming or speaking. But then. Christian leaders apologized to two Jewish leaders for the history of Christian anti-Semitism. And family members of Charleston Church shooting victims declared their forgiveness for Dylan Roof. At this monument on this mountain that had these historical ties to racism in the KKK had become a location of forgiveness, of racial reconciliation that was being celebrated here because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was this powerful image where people heard about it in the news, and people were like, what is going on there? What is happening here? But it began as Christians were saying, it's not okay what's going on in our city. The things that I see, they grieve me, and I'm going to step into that gap through prayer and fasting. And out of that time, it doesn't just stop there. It actually leads to people reconciling, people confessing sin, people saying, our racism, our prejudice against this ethnic group is wrong. And they confessed it before one another. It was there was people forgiving those who had wronged them. And that doesn't just have to happen in Atlanta. What if you and I saw the things that are going on in our city, many things that grieve us? And we responded to that hostility, the injustice, the inequality, the distrust by going before our Father in heaven. And pleading for those things. Asking God, the one who has authority in heaven and on earth, who is able to change circumstances and the hearts of people to bring about change there, for His kingdom and His will to be done there as it is in heaven. What if we directly petitioned God through our fasting to awaken the church in Vancouver, to convict the church of their sin, to have a heart for His presence, A concern for justice. A concern for reconciliation between the church and First Nations. See, the kind of renewal that you and I want to see in our city that we know is needed isn't going to come through a petition, though those can be helpful for bringing about some change. The type of renewal that we want to see needs way more than that. And it's going to come through petition to the living God. So will you hunger for the things of God? Will your hunger for the things of God be greater than that hunger for comfort? Father in heaven, we thank you for your son Jesus, for the gift that he is. Lord, I ask that today you would make us aware of anything you would want us to fast about that your spirit would highlight in our minds anything that um, has grieved you, that you want us to express grief about. And I ask that this week you would give us courage to step out in a new way. Give us grace for ourselves and for our families and our roommates. We pray for our city. We ask that you would move. We pray for reconciliation where relationships and ethnicities are divided. We pray for peace, Lord. We pray for reconciliation amongst uh, civil authorities and, and the poorest and marginalized in our city, where there seems to be great distrust. We pray for comfort, Lord Jesus, for those who are grieving the losses because of people who have died during the opioid crisis, those who are grieving because of broken marriages, those who are grieving, Lord, at what has happened um, amongst First Nations and everything that they're working through. Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our city, in our country. We need you to move, and we need you to move in your church. Help us to turn away from seeking comfort and to always be comfortable. May our hunger for you be greater, we pray. Spark that in us by your spirit for your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.